0: Hello, I'm Pete Raby, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. Today, I'm joined by Lisa Budell, an award winning author and CEO of Future Think. As a futurist and expert on the topic of innovation and simplicity, Lisa serves as a global council member of the World Economic Forum and has helped thousands of senior leaders ignite innovation at organizations including Bloomberg, Pfizer, and Lockheed Martin. Lisa, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been looking forward to the conversation a lot. I'd really love to know the story behind you becoming a world-renowned futurist. Why don't we start there?
1: Oh, God. Well, Peter, thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure. Uh, We finally get to connect. A world renowned futurist. Well, everyone thinks futurists are like business psychics, and that's not what it is. A futurist, (laughs) it was a happy accident, right? Like I like to use the phrase strategic luck. I was, um, you know, networking with someone and they said, you really like to be inquisitive and talk about trends. You seem good at it. Have you ever thought about studying foresight? And I said, I don't even know what you're talking about. So someone introduced me to the head futurist at Dow Chemical in Midland, Michigan, which is where my family is from. It's a very small town. And uh, I invited him for coffee. And he talked to me about the actual study of how change happens. And that's what a futurist is. They talk about possible, probable, and preferable futures. And there's a structured way, um, they actually teach it, to go about it. So I got my certificate in it. And I joined the Society of Professional Futurists. It's a small, odd, quirky, weird group of people that study odd trends. And from there, I I met all the people that actually teach foresight in Houston to uh, the largest oil companies because oil companies were the ones who started foresight, like Shell. And from there, I started learning how to teach change. And it was the perfect meld with innovation. So I became a futurist through a happy accident by meeting somebody I didn't know there was a structured way to teach it. And then I met all these people that do it on an ongoing basis and the people that practice it in these really large companies and decided that I wanted to teach it to other organizations too so they could be a little bit more innovative on an ongoing basis. We need more futures to think bigger.
0: Awesome description, Lisa. And uh, yeah, already I'm chomping to learn and discuss more, that's for sure. I don't think there was – when I was at school (laughs) 20 years ago – (laughs) <laughs> at university in london i don't think there was any if any kind of discussion or modules or big study of change and i'm sure there are lots of very good schools that now absolutely have it or have had it for a long time i'd love to hear your thoughts on this feels like such an alien concept for so many leaders that go through a bit of an organic journey and then get into positions where you actually need to be thinking about changing in a different way where you're looking after other people where you're going through something that's going to take time and is going to have quite a big impact i'd love to get your thoughts as to yeah how to go about it better
1: so, uh, and I, I talk about this a lot, even at my, in my children's school, you know, like at, starting at young levels, we spend so much time teaching history, fantastic, but we don't teach the future. Why? And I don't understand that. And teaching about the future is helping people be more inquisitive and curious, helping to be more agile, helping to be resilient with change. And those are fundamental principles and skills, right, that people need to learn. We don't teach it. We teach static things. And that ill prepares children and people, right, to get out into the real world, whether it's at work or not. So I believe that we should be spending more time, I mean, first, like you said, at school, university, teaching about the future. And that can be teaching foresight, like structured ways to change, because that's an introduction into innovation. Or at least teaching people to be more inquisitive so they can be open to different perspectives, right? So that is a, a key thing. I also think we should be teaching psychology in business school because it's all about dealing with people and change and being uncomfortable. I mean, so much of business isn't driven by strategy, it's driven by risk and fear and power, control and trust. We don't teach any of those things. So there's there's a lot that goes into foresight in terms of teaching people to look forward. But the biggest thing, Peter, and this is a longer answer than you ask for, is it teaches people to be proactive about change, proactive obsolescence. When people get into business today, they are reactive. Right? Think about COVID. Everyone was really proud about how they reacted to change. I don't want my people just to react to change. I want them to create the change that they put on others. You create the future you want, not just wait for someone else to put it on you. That is a valuable thing to teach, not just employees, but kids.
0: We've got a, a schools program that we get out to and leaders in our business go out to their co- local communities and speak to secondary schools. Amazing. So children between the ages of 13 and 16, 17 years of age because one of the things that I've always believed for a long time, and it, there's emotional intelligence and then there's mm. right, IQ and EQ. But the reality is the school system is set up for people that-
1: IQ. Now, Bingo. what
0: happens if like lots of our excellent achievers, you can just about do okay, but you're a people, you're a humanist. you're You're someone that kind of gets- the way that people behave and your your and therefore the the vast services sector, it makes people feel and children feel undervalued, rejected, I'm not good, there's no way my life's gonna be good, and it's a bit of a vicious circle. Whereas sure. the reality is, of course, that people, if they go into something going, no, no, that there's a there's an education system which supports both the IQ and the EQ piece far in far better balance. How much better Agreed. would it world be?
1: This gets to, now this is the reason why you've been successful, right? Is because frankly, there are people that want to be successful because they're innovative and that makes them the best at what they do. But you want to know the people that are very successful, they're the only ones that do what they do. There's a big difference. And so we teach people with IQ to be the best at what you do. But the people that get ahead and be the best doctor, that's fine. But the people that are going to solve cancer are the only ones that do what they do. And they have to have a very different, innovative, future-looking, asking, putting together different dots mentality. We don't teach that enough. So we've got to get out of this, be the best. And we've got to start to be the only, looking for the new. And I think people want to do that, naturally, but they don't know how. And they're too busy. They don't, even if they know how, they can't get to it because they're doing stupid things all day. So there's a lot of things we need to change to get people to be more, um, I don't know, forward looking. It's important.
0: Absolutely. Now, this is one of the things selfishly, Lisa, I was really looking forward to asking you because as I mentioned, I haven't been doing the CEO job very long and definitely the last right. year has been probably the uh, the biggest eye opening year that I've had to date when it comes to trying to change too many things at one time trying to change some real foundational things and Hard. the reality is is a ambitious energetic person that goes we can do anything and it's there's nothing. you know look how blue that sky is let's go for it that's been a bit of a realization in this last year of wow pete just pick the things that you want to change and maybe do a lot more reading and studying in relation to effective change management because trying to do a lot of big sweeping changes at once, wow, there's going to be some payback to that. And they're, if not executed well, <laughs> you're going to have some fallout, right? So I'd love to hear what Resistance. people get wrong with change. Maybe one of those is one of the most obvious examples, Pete, trying to do too much at once. And are there any questions that people should go about asking themselves before they embark on what they know, if individually done, would be you know would be powerful? But um, yeah, I'd love to get your thoughts on that.
1: Well, the reason you're CEO is because you are a blue sky thinker and you do want to change things. So that's what makes you good at your job. What makes it hard at your job is that realizing that not everybody is like you, right? And I have the same thing. Like, come on, this will be great. It'll be painful, probably uncomfortable. But when you get through it, right? Think about COVID. Right everyone before COVID said, "We'll never be able to work at home, we'll never be able to do things never, never, never." And now everyone's like, "Go back to work. I'm not doing that, right? But it, they had to go through it in an intense period. Well, it, it shouldn't have to take a you know a pandemic to change people. I, here's what I think. I think that most of the resistance to change is driven by fear. so it's not just our job to get rid of you know the blocking of change, it's the fear, so that's a big one. People naturally fear it. They fear the unknown. They fear missing out. They fear getting fired. So changing a lot at once is hard. The biggest thing I think people don't realize about change is when people hear change, they hear more. And what I mean by that is you need to do more. And people are already exhausted, busy. They don't want to take on more. They are maxed. So You know, this is my bias, but I think for change management to work, you have to start by getting rid of, you got to weed the garden, get rid of all the crap and unnecessary things and simplify. That's why simplicity is such a big thing right now. So you can make the space for change to happen. If you don't, people don't have time, so you better find it. And there's plenty of places that you can find or get back time by getting rid of unnecessary things. And we can, you know, I could go off on a whole thing on that, but there's a, there's a lot of people who they're smart and you hired them to do more than meetings and emails, but they do that all day long. So if we can just change how they're using their time, I think that they'll get better on board with change. They'll get pumped up by it.
0: i read a really awesome book called Co Excellence that the McKinley group have put together. And the bit that I just loved in that book was the last chapter that talked about You gave examples from 10 different CEOs across very varied industries and backgrounds on where they spend their time. And ever since reading that book, I asked my leaders continually, right, you know, we're sitting down for this monthly, how do you feel like you're doing in relation to usage of time? Now, I think it's one of of the contradictions I'm looking forward to getting to because innovation and simplicity do not always go hand in hand. I don't believe Lisa. Yes, Yes, I do. We're going to get to that in a moment, (laughs) but in in relation to leaders and their time management, have you, have you seen any particular techniques or methodologies in making sure that, as you say, business as usual, just isn't operate, isn't taking up 99% of the time and there's little room for, for for anything else. I'd be, I'd be fascinated to hear what you've seen.
1: If you've got an organization that has 10,000 people and you think about it, people spend 2000 hours, probably more a year, that's 40 hours a week. That is 20 million hours that people are spending at work. That's a lot of time to get things done. If you actually got 5% of that time back for more meaningful work, that is a million hours, Peter, that could be spent on better things. And when you ask people, you know, what do they spend their day doing? You know what they say? I don't care where I am in the world, where they work, the level they're at, the industry. They say meetings and emails. Every single person. I mean, I, I talk to a lot of people, right? Tens of thousands of pe- meetings and emails. No one was hired for their ability to run a meeting or write an email. That's what they spend their day doing. And if you ask them if the majority of those things are productive, they say no. There are a lot of empty calorie emails in their inbox. There is a lot of wasted time. And the key thing about that is there are simple ways that we can actually, we need to teach people that it's okay to get rid of. And then they will make the space for more meaningful work to happen. They are drowning in things that are not valuable. And that's that's through bad habits. And so when we clear those bad habits out, we can get more of those million hours back for innovative work. It's not that people don't know how to innovate, Peter. It's that they don't have time. They can't get to it.
0: One of the big things that we've tried to do over the last year is get to a point of if there's one, two, or a maximum three things that you're going to put your name to this quarter that you want to get done, what are those things going to be? to try and bring in a bit of a philosophy of less being more. Some of the dangers I've seen with leaders over the years is that people think that them working 12-hour days or running around like headless chickens looks good or means that they're working hard. But I agree with you enormously. I think the vast majority of the time, when you're running around like headless chicken doing more, you're actually accomplishing far less and, and, and trying to get that simplicity into the thinking of actually, come let's reduce it all down. What are we actually in your role to do? And, and trying think, to get back to that has been having some benefits here. I don't know if you've seen or any other busy examples.
1: is, uh, I think you're right on. Busy is a form of importance, right? I'm so busy, right? Everyone wants to be busy, but what's the, okay. So we've got to make it that it's actually, it's less about being busy and it's less about doing valuable. So you specifically said, what are ways you can do it? I think leaders need to build into um, strategic planning and into people's reviews, their commitment to stopping doing things. I know Santa Fe actually has, um, we do this too that they actually have people commit in their strategic planning to not just the top three things they're going to do, but the three things that they commit to stop doing. And that's an important signal because asking people to just commit to what they're going to do is fine. But what happens is all the things that get in the way and they use this as excuses. So making people commit to stopping is important. We also do something I think is incredibly powerful. It's called killing stupid rules. And we have rule killing sessions that we do organization wide Pfizer USAA Accenture us that we actually invites people to come in and kill stupid unnecessary rules and what that does is creates a structured forum for people to identify their time sucks their time wasters and be able to get rid of those things. And you know what they're typically not rules Peter they're like meetings and you know attendance of at things cultural norms you know agendas processes and they they figure out that there are ways in their sphere of control that they can actually hack work and get time back. So there's structured ways to go about it either in strategic planning or by killing stupid rules that teaches people that it's expected to get rid of. You are expected right. to get rid of those things and that's an that's a powerful signal for people to see and hear. But you have to do it first. If you don't do it, they won't do it, Peter.
0: Yeah, I love that. Absolutely love it. Uh, what are three things you're going to stop doing this quarter to, to help you uh, enjoy life better and be more effective? And They'll be and, stunned. And
1: They'll be stunned because they never get asked that.
0: I think you're exactly right about the fear that comes with change because ultimately people go, oh, oh this sounds like a mountain more work coming my way. And sometimes innovation and this way, we might be coming at it from a different perspective. But innovation means, go, how can we do things differently?" Or what brand new ideas can we suck in that could be a, the future of the business? That could really like could make things so much easier for people. Could whatever. may Innovation should be and is a very good thing. But I guess the bit that comes with it sometimes is like, Whoa, But some of these things are going to be mighty complex to actually get going and end up launching or end up actually having an impact on things. So I'd love, that feels like to me a, a bit of a clash, but explain to me how I'm thinking about this wrong, Lisa. Well,
1: <laughs> so I think there are necessary things and unnecessary things. So there's necessary complexity. Like we just launched a huge product yesterday. We have a huge, you know, we're training, co- we do online learning. So we launched a huge, huge program in seven languages that was incredibly complex, but it was valuable. The only way we were able to do that was by getting rid of things that were not valuable. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, is that I think that for people to be able to embrace change and get excited about it, they've got to be in the headspace and have the energy to do it. And the thing that brings them down are all the unnecessary things. I get pumped, like my team is pumped to work on really cool, like new product launches because there's something tangible. You can say I worked hard on that, that had meaning to me that if most people aren't spending their time on meaning, so, you know, going back to what you said before, if if that's, if you want people to embrace change, you have to define what meaningful work is to them. And because change means we're going to change for the better, right? Not for the worse. And this is going to allow you to do what, like what's in it for them. And what that means is it allows them to do meaningful work. Most bosses never define what meaningful work is. And I think that's what's interesting too, which is meaningful work is valuable, innovative, whatever, but it means different things to procurement than it does to the scientists than it does to marketing. It would be an interesting exercise, and we do this, if you got your team in a room and you said, you know, what do you spend most of your time on? And when they look at those things that you ask them to actually identify the things that they spend their time on that are valuable. And what you'll find is that they don't really identify or circle things on their list. They don't identify more than a handful of things. So, that means they're spending their time on a lot of things that aren't valuable. Why? And then what you do is you ask them, What do you wish you spent your time doing? And what's interesting about that is people either don't know because they've never thought about it, they just like to complain about it, or especially with the leaders, they give you this five part, multi part answer. They don't have an articulate solution. So, it helps you define collectively what is meaningful work and gives people a compass on where they should spend their time. That's helpful.
0: I love the uh, the description and the, the clearly the, the terrific work that you've done for so many big businesses, hmm. productivity, simplicity. I think we've started to, to, to hone in on some of those bits and pieces. But, you know, you've worked with organizations that must go about business in very different ways, Lisa. Lots sure. of these businesses are highly successful at what they do. So I guess my question for uh, looking at it from that angle is, Are there some common things that the most successful organizations do when it comes to time and productivity that businesses that don't ever get to be that level don't? Or or, or does each individual culture come up with its own way of defining what productivity and simplicity looks like?
1: So I think there's common tenets, but they all have different metrics. So like you mentioned before, I know you've had folks on here from MasterCard, but look at MasterCard versus Visa, right? Their definitions of innovation might be very different. One might be about getting more people to use a card, and the other one might be about more cards, more types of cards. Both are innovative things they have to do, but they have different compasses, right? And their cultures are very different. But the idea is leaders, first of all, they give people time (laughs) to do the work. They allow them to get rid of things that hold them back from doing it, and then the leaders model the behavior. Let me give you a Pfizer example. So Pfizer, right, there's, it's not stunning to me that they came up with a vaccine because they are very focused on simplifying and being innovative because they know those things go hand in hand. And Albert is the CEO, in fact, told people that, and he reported out to the street on the number of meetings that they got rid of because they wanted to get rid of unnecessary work. And when Alberts first launched this initiative to simplify things and give people more space to think, he said, I want people to stop, say no to meetings. What a great guy, right? Say no to meetings. And a month later, people were still drowning in meetings. And he was like, you know, a little pissed off about it. And he asked one of his lieutenants, why? You know, I told them to say no. And, um, you know, his right-hand man, his, his chief of staff said, well, it's because you still go to every meeting. And until he started modeling the behavior because of fear, Right. Nobody changed. The minute he started saying no and it sent a signal, other people did it. So it's great to state what you want in terms of change, and it's great to define it, but until you model it, Peter, nobody, it's fear. People won't do it. So I think that is a common theme. You might have, Pfizer and Novartis have very different compasses and very different leadership, but they must model the behavior and define why the change is happening. Then people will do it. The other thing is they create the space for people to be able to do the good work. I think uh, again, it's giving people the space. I know people right now that are mandating deep work, and we do it. I make sure every person at my team takes a half day every week, and they have to block their calendar. I don't care when it is because everyone thinks differently. Mine's Friday morning. Some people like it midweek, and it's no meetings. So rather than doing your no meeting Friday or whatever it is, you know, you you set aside the time that's best for you because everyone thinks differently to do your deep work. And I mandate it, and I do it too because I have to send the signal that I don't want. You know, you're never going to be able to do deep work if you're constantly context switching and everyone's like, but there's so many meetings. We've got to put boundaries on our time. So I think, you know, time, the number one resource is time, man. And and we've got to be able to get it back. It's non-renewable. Once you spend it, it's gone.
0: As, as with all great ideas, Lisa, I adore the simplicity of it.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. I know it is. It's simple, but it, it and does it work all the time. No, but it, there's got to be some things in place that you you model the behavior and you make it systemic. I think it's interesting to me, even on my team, people will say I constantly am, I'm like, why are you doing that? Why do you do it? Like they're like, you're right, because it's a habit, right? It's just a habit. So I, calling people out to do less is a great I, I mean, I think that's a great boss thing. A great, why are you doing that? Because I think people with the best of intentions create incredible, unnecessary complexity that sucks up their time and drains them. But they don't see it like that until you call it out.
0: One of the things that I love doing is, rather than doing a scheduled meeting in my office, which is a pretty nice office with a beautiful view of the River Thames in the heart of central London or Williamsburg wow. with the East River in front of you, Lisa, so as, as I was yeah. discussing to you pre-recording... But I love getting out the office, going for a stroll, having the water, getting that motion, and getting the idea. The ideas flow so much better when you're not stuck in a another stodgy meeting room. I'd be fascinated to hear from you what you've seen great leaders do when it comes to not just one-on-one related stuff. Because I'm sure lots of people do these kind of things, but like how regularly should different groups or big teams be? Re- thrown out of sight and kind of taken somewhere new into the mountains or, you know, have you seen good habits with all the top leaders that do this on a quarterly, six-monthly, yearly basis? No, there won't be one size that fits all, of course.
1: I think there's a few things I would I would build in the bigger things like quarterly because I think b- too much big stuff then becomes chaos, right? Then it's too much. And then there's things I would build on an ongoing basis. So like what you just said in terms of walking or getting people out of their comfort zone, I do those quarterly, for example. Like I have my team meet quarterly, and every time there's a there's a, a group event where we go. And uh, so, for example, maybe what we're going to be doing is I actually bring in my trainers from Second City, and they teach them all kinds of new routines, which is fantastic. Or I send them on a field trip, and I give them fifty dollars, and I say, go buy something innovative, meet us here for drinks, and you got to share what you got. So it's something simple, but it teaches a behavior, and it's something that's nice to do together on a quarterly basis. If you did that every day, that's ridiculous. But the things to do all the time, like in your weekly status meetings, right, is inject interactivity and collaboration in different ways. So you're modeling behavior. Like, so, for example, we use Mentimeter and I'm constantly doing uh, quizzes with them. Or we're doing um, different ways to gather on Google Jamboards ideas. So it pulls in introverts and extroverts. So little ways to model behavior on an ongoing basis, but bigger things that set the tone on a quarterly basis, I think, are better. Leaders overdo it. They just think, you know, they get those, let's go for a walk every day. And then people are like, God, it's too much change. And it'll be
0: really interesting to get your insight on What are the most complex aspects in a business, do you think, Lisa, that can be simplified the easiest but are often missed?
1: I think a few things. Well, meetings and emails are number one, because I think it's just, it's the work of work and we fall into things and we don't realize that we can actually change them. And I think that there are little things by putting things on a time diet, changing the frequency, stopping doing them and say, well, I miss it. Those are big. The bigger ones are processes. Because we don't stop and think about what are the parts of a process that we could hack. And you know what's interesting is a lot of people are scared to question processes because they feel like they're, you know, it's almost like they're delivered from God. It's verboten to touch them. And, you know, Novartis does something interesting. They do work hacks. And what I like about this is, you know, we, we do innovation jams and all this stuff. But when we do tech hacks, why don't we do work hacks and pick a process that sucks? And what you're going to find is you're going to invite people that work on that processor from the outside that have great ways to hack it, whether getting rid of a step, getting rid of people involved in it, whatever. The reason that people don't share their hacks of work is because they think they're cheating and they're afraid of getting called out. But if you give a forum like Quarterly to hack a problem, it's amazing what you're going to be able to figure out. Processes are mm-hmm. a big deal.
0: We're in an environment. We employ a lot of graduates. We have, a therefore, a very large, and I believe totally, in an environment that has learning at the heart of it, where you can read all the textbooks you want, but until you do something oh, and fall definitely. over and butt your head and go, Oh, that was unpleasant. Now, the way that you're going to learn best is going to be by other people around you that have also gone through that experience and are good at their job and have been that learning by that. But the reality is for a lot of people, especially life sciences, technology sectors, there's an awful lot of fully remote and maybe even sometimes one day a week collaboration in the office. So I guess the thing that I'll be really interested to, to hear your views on best practices for maintaining productivity in a virtual environment, because it's very, very clear to us that you can, some business like ourselves, it's very easy to have very set out KPIs this is what we're expecting. Let's go and do it. But yeah, I mean, that massive topic in a few minutes, Lisa, it'd be good to get your take on.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, one of the things we talk about is like fit, the big thing right now, especially with hybrid work is fit for purpose, right? Like, why do you meet right? And what are the ways that you meet? And th- this is what I always say, right? So it's emails are for information, meetings are for decisions, phone calls are slack, or Slack are for I- instant needs. And so that little mantra, right, is really important for my team. I also let them know when to include me and when not to include me. So one of the things that can be really interesting and hybrid is like we try and minimize meetings because I think we think Zoom or Teams is all about it's if I'm on Zoom, I'm working. You're not. So a big thing in our team also is to be uninvited. It's a very big, cool thing to be uninvited to a meeting. And the reason for that is because their time is too important. So that sends a signal to them in hybrid work that being online is not where it's at. It's being, having time for deep work. Now, people don't know the difference, Peter, between being in a groove and being in a rut because they look and feel exactly the same. Mm-hmm. and following the same patterns like getting on zoom and doing emails and a hybrid work they feel like that's just the way you do it but if you define right the ways of interaction and really push doing less i think that people will get more done
0: becoming a change specialist becoming a futurist i don't think there'll be many of the very senior leadership that we have listened to the podcast that won't be thinking yep that is absolutely on my want to be getting better at want to develop at it there are, of course, multiple ways of self-developing all the time, courses, listening, reading, pods, et cetera, et cetera, further education. What have you seen? And of course, every individual learns in a different way, too, to make it a really convoluted, overly complex question. But people well, want to become change specialists, want to become futurists. Where would where would people start to make sure they're on the right kind of path?
1: You can study it. That's for sure. You can do that. But I think the thing about being uh, embracing change and being a futurist is starting with being curious. And- you can actually take a different route to work. You can start reading things that you normally don't read. The idea is if you want to come up with something new, you have to do something new. And the only way to do that is to read or act differently. One of the things we teach kids is to have brain dates. And so we call it 50 minute brain dates. So every week, you reach out to somebody that is in a field you're curious about or does something completely different or is an unusual suspect, and you ask, you get on the phone and you ask them questions. And brain dates are really interesting because people love to talk about themselves. They're probably going to give you 15 minutes of time. And it's amazing if you can just dedicate that to learning how much more by the end of the year that you'll have to expand and learn about the future. It's just setting aside the time to do it.
0: It was the weirdest thing that you said that three days ago, my young family were down at the coast whilst they stayed in London for a couple of days of uninterrupted work, which felt like some kind of utopia that I'd forgotten that was even a glorious thing. And I got... I, I got into town in, like in, in a really, really early uh, early um, in the morning and was like, right, come on, you've got the time here. You've done your prep, go out for a run and ran around the beautiful St. James's Park. And on the way back, Lisa, because I'd done something different, something new, I thought about someone that I couldn't quite work out the solution to yet in a whole new manner. So that phrase you've just said there in relation to, if you want to come up with something new, you've got to do something new, read a new book, do something differently, I think is a wonderful thing that... I think I'm going to be embedding that into my diary a bit more from now <laughs> on. So I did cool. mention to you pre-conversation, this is going to be a slightly selfish chat, Lisa. And I think I've just uh, oh, found We're
1: already use. on the road to doing it. That's amazing.
0: And it's been such an interesting conversation as I knew it would be. I normally ask people for one book or podcast or movie that you recommend that you've taken some long lasting learns from Lisa. And by the sounds of it, everyone will be different yeah. for this as well, but in this area of change futurism, like is there a is there a bit of a <laughs> a Bible that you refer that you go back to, or that was the kind of a brilliant bedrock for you to be able to go from what you've done?
1: Oh my gosh, so interesting! Well, you know, I have a lot of friends whose I'm you know I know their books are I'm in their books, so I love Adam's Grants Think Again. I really enjoyed. Um, I also really enjoyed from a human perspective, The Social Animal, which is really interesting. And another one that I think is really great for leaders to to read right now is Peter Atias Outlive. And that's another one that's really interesting because it really talks about how do we actually get ourselves, not just in terms of health and wellness, but we plan now for the long term. And that translates for us personally as well as professionally. And I think those are ones that have different perspectives leaders could really learn from.
0: Awesome. The only problem with doing this podcast on a weekly basis, Lisa, is that I've got a pile of books so big. I've got a, I've got a load of listened audio books on my phone where I'm like, when's the time? <laughs>
1: You're not going to, well, when you get rid of unnecessary stuff, you'll have it. But audiobooks, that's what you do. That's another one.
0: (laughs) On the bike, on the bike. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. And Lisa, just finally to wrap things up, and I would like to speak to you for a few hours at a time, to be honest with you, but um, (laughs) like the diaries ever allow it, although maybe I should uh, look at that after this conversation. If there was one learn that you want our listeners to take away from today, like of all the stuff that you're doing and all the great things and all those many interesting topics we covered, what's one question you want leaders to ask themselves walking away from this?
1: Sure. So this is going to sound silly, but you know, being organized isn't being simplified. And I think a lot of leaders try to get people to be more organized to be productive. I don't think that's going to get you anywhere. Right? I can have a very organized 100-step program. I think being simplified is teaching people that that less is more. It's okay to get rid of to make space for change to happen.
0: Lisa, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insights with us. I know that there'll be loads that will resonate with the listeners and certainly like myself, they'll be taking away some valuable, valuable ideas. (laughs) Thank you everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please give a five-star rating and do share with others in your network. Lisa, thank you so much for coming on.
1: Peter, thanks.